This is QD Clinic. Hi, I'm Jack Cush with Room Now. QD Clinic is brought to you by Room Now Live 2024, coming in two weeks. Be there, be square. It's for you if you're interested and you want to be informed or inspired. That's what our content is all about. Today's case is a 64-year-old seropositive RA patient who is on um, sertolizumab and methotrexate and... Um, analgesic medicines, I mean, a little bit of Advil, um, folic acid, um, pravastatin, that's about it. Um, she's in because she has, in addition to RA, severe osteoarthritis in both knees and has a right knee effusion. It's cool. And the question is, if I'm going to inject that knee, and I'm sort of actually not a big fan of joint injection, but I think this is a good situation. She's otherwise RA controlled, right? Her, um, what's her disease activity scores here? She really has no swollen joints other than the one plus effusion, cool effusion in the right knee. And the question is, if you're going to inject her, whether you use triamcinolone or, or depomedrol as I do, do you do arthrocentesis before you um, inject the steroid? I must say that I have done this many times, both ways. And, you know, the question is, what does the literature say? Because my, you know, experience is really N of one because I, I'm not going to remember the last 45 or 60 times I did this. So I looked this up and it turns out that arthrocentesis prior to corticosteroid intraarticular injection is more effective, significantly so, like P dot zero zero one and less than that so i'm looking at a few studies one 150 patients um and you know they were randomized in this study to um uh either withdrawal of fluid or no withdrawal fluid after getting 20 milligrams of uh triamcinolone and these are ra patients not oa although you know i'm sure there was some oa the bottom line is that there was a significant difference with as much as a 40% um, difference in relapse rates. And they, they went out 200 days. So that's, you know, what, seven months or so. And the relapse rate on the no um, arthrocentesis group was, um, you know, at least 35 points better, 35% better at, uh, at, at seven months. So... Again, it's not what I wanted to hear because I kind of want to, you know, go and the point. And I guess what you're, what are you going to do? Are you going to do what I do, which is if it's a good size or a large size effusion, yeah, I'll drain it. If it's a trace effusion, is it worth it? Where you know you may not get fluid out, um, I won't. And what I'll do is I'll try to put in as much steroid as I can. I can get. I can, um, and and I'll try to dilute it as much as I can with lidocaine to get better spread of the steroid uh, to the synovium and the synovial membrane inside. So that's how you should approach intraarticular aspiration and injection in an RA patient. Tune in for more QD Clinics. Welcome to QD Clinic. Hi, I'm Jack Cush with Room Now. QD Clinic is brought to you by Room Now Live, January 27, 28. It's not too late to register this is a meeting that is timely, relevant, and engaging. We answer your questions, all your questions at Room Now Live. 
So today's case is a 33-year-old woman who's on methotrexate for rheumatoid arthritis. She's been doing good. She's been taking methotrexate for the last two years, has her psoriatic arthritis under good control. She's taking a non-steroidal drug as her only other therapy for occasional aches or stiffness. She is 33 and she wants to get pregnant. And the question is, what do I do with my methotrexate and my naproxen? How long do I have to be on uh, or off of uh, those drugs or specifically methotrexate? And I'm worried that I may flare. So what is your advice to the patient? Um, There's a few things that are certain here. Yes, you have to be off methotrexate to conceive. The question is, how long? The formal answer that you'll get from 99% of everyone out there is that you need to be off methotrexate for three months. The answer you'll get from me, the one percenter, is you have to be off for one month. I was on the ACR Reproductive Guidelines Committee, and when I brought up the one month to all the other committee members, I got voted down and shouted down, even though I had the only evidence that would support this issue. The only evidence actually comes from the manufacturer of methotrexate, back then known as Rheumatrex. It was the company called Warner Lambert. If you go and look at the package insert for Rheumatrex or methotrexate, and by the way, you can look this up at a website called Daily Med. Uh, it's called Daily Med. It might be dailymed.gov, but look, search for Daily Med. Daily Med will give you the package insert of every drug ever made anywhere. And when you go in there, you'll find out there's a, you know, 25 different generics of methotrexate. But find the original one by Warner Lambert and Rheumatrex. And when you look under, you know, guidance regarding pregnancy, the actual wording is that you have to be off of methotrexate for one ovulatory cycle, meaning for one month. Again, that was based on animal data and we don't know what else, but there are really no other sources other than the preponderance of opinion from everybody in OB and rheumatology that says three months. This issue was brought to my attention by Mike Weinblatt, who was probably involved in the original trials for methotrexate. So I do recommend that patients be off for three months because that's the prevailing opinion that you would get in a court of law. It's not the most authoritative one. So I'm okay with someone who's been off of the drug for a month or even six weeks. That's what I would recommend. But that's me. I'm not saying you should do that. So three months would be the answer. You can stay on the non-steroidal up until week 32, and then you should be off of all non-steroidal um, agents because uh, that would lead to a lot of complications, including premature closure of the ductus arteriosus. So the other issue is what non-steroidal is safe during pregnancy. I think there's better evidence about the safety of the non-selective non-steroidal as opposed to COX-2s. There's some negative data about COX-2s in pregnancy that I think is, um, I'm not, I'm not 100% certain, but nonetheless, I would avoid COX-2s if I could. Pain management can be done with uh, either acetaminophen or prednisone if necessary, and I don't like prednisone. So that's really, I guess, the first question. Um, the, the next question is, um, uh, what would they take during pregnancy? I, as I told you, if they needed more than methotrexate, I'm entirely comfortable with patients being on every biologic we have, especially the TNF inhibitors throughout the pregnancy and continuing throughout delivery. And that would be especially so for sertolizumab. 
But uh, I would also use etanercept as my next best choice. Um, and even adalimumab and stop either adalimumab or rifliximab with about 8 to 12 weeks left in the pregnancy because uh, the antibody may cross over the placenta. Um, that's sort of the second in, in, in issue. Again, the mother's health and RA activity needs to be your first priority. The idea that you may say to your patients, don't worry, we can stop your drugs because everybody with RA goes into remission is frankly wrong. Up to half of patients with RA who stop all their drugs and become pregnant will continue activity or get worse. The number who will actually get better is probably only a third. You know, a third will probably skate along as they are. But again, optimal disease control gives you the best chance at a healthy offspring. And that should be, your, so whether you get there by staying on a TNF inhibitor or an IL-6 inhibitor, again, the only drugs I haven't used much in pregnancy would be JAK inhibitors. I've never used rituximab because it's too long a, um, a duration of effect. But uh, all the other drugs, abatacept, uh, IL-6 inhibitors, uh, TNF inhibitors, I'm happy to use. And then lastly, what should you do postpartum? I think the patient can stay postpartum um, immediately on the same therapies they were at on at the time of delivery. They're not likely to flare until they stop breastfeeding. That's been my rule. Um, so I tend to want them to breastfeed for at least six weeks, and then I'm starting to advise them to go back on their therapy, noting that they can take biologic agents, even though that maybe in breast milk it's not going to get to the child, it's not going to do the child any harm. Anyway, this answers the question of how long do I have to be off of methotrexate if I wish to get pregnant. We'll see you at New Room Now Live. It's coming in two weeks. This is QD Clinic. I'm Jack Cush with Room Now. QD Clinic is brought to you by Room Now Live 2024, the meeting that's all about content that gives you confidence and certainty and given in a culture that you're going to enjoy, that sort of the feel of the meeting is unlike other meetings with short lectures, uh, a lot of accessibility to both your peers and the speakers. I think you're going to enjoy it. Our case today is about GCA and getting off steroids. So this is a patient I saw a while ago. And so I have a two-year perspective on this story. She's 73 when she presents and... She presents because for a year she's been having TMJ pain and some occasional right-sided headaches. And it's not until, and a TMJ pain really is, on further questioning, jaw claudication. The more she uses it when she's chewing and whatnot, she gets painful. But anyway, that goes on for not quite a year, but it wasn't until she had a sudden loss of vision and was sent by a primary care to the emergency room that... Everyone said, aha, this is, you know, giant cell arteritis, temporal arteritis. And they put her on steroids. They got an immediate temporal artery biopsy. Uh, the steroids, I think she got two days of pulse and then was put on 60 milligrams a day. The biopsy showed classic temporal, arter temporal arteritis with a uh, prominent lymphocytic infiltrate within the adventitia, mononuclear cells throughout and around the blood vessel, um, but no giant cells were seen. But nonetheless, this was compatible with the diagnosis. She was managed with high-dose steroids, and on getting down to 10 milligrams or less, she would have more symptoms, more jaw symptoms, more headache symptoms, and so she was put on methotrexate. And that was nearly a year and a half ago. And then um, because she 
again, on further steroid reduction. When she would get down to, you know, 10 or, or 6, you know, all kinds of things would go wrong. Lots of phone calls, lots of complaints, no more visual loss, but jaw pain, headache pain, feeling bad, feeling feverish. This was the scenario. Uh, and because of that, she's put on, as you would imagine, uh, tocilizumab for steroid sparing. She does well, and, and that's where we are now, right? She's on tocilizumab, and she's on uh, 8 milligrams of prednisone. Now, using the retrospectoscope, if we look back at all of her set rates and CRPs when she's on steroids, they've all been rock-solid bottom, not elevated. She presented, when the initial biopsy was done and visual loss, with a set rate of 112. It went down to 40-something, and then after that, it's been single-digit set rates and CRPs doing the same. And the question is, how do you know? How do you know it's not a recurrence? Did she really need steroid-sparing therapy with methotrexate and then later Actemra? My answer is yes because I know I'm more completely treating the condition. And without those, I'm not going to get her off steroids. And she's 73. She has osteopenia. She's only on cal calcium and vitamin D. She does not have yet a, a, a number uh, or a degree of osteoporosis that would require a more aggressive treatment. But nonetheless, you know, she is hypertensive. She does have hyperlipidemia. She is 73. she got to get off steroids. And I think this is a tough love management situation. These patients are very hard to manage. And I think you need to run these kind of cases by your colleagues and get their input on what they would do. What I do is when, you know, the patient declares for me more than once that I can't wean steroids, they're on steroid sparing. And, I'll, and methotrexate is a good first choice. The IL-6 inhibitor is a great uh, a great choice. I don't know that you need more than that. And there are other drugs that are being developed, other trials that are uh, going on right now that we may have other options for the future. But you're still going to have this issue of, of how do I get them off the steroids? One, you got to couch, uh, counsel a patient and coach them up. Say, when I drop your steroids, you're going to feel like crap because your body is used to steroids. It's going to say, where's the juice? And you're going to get symptoms that look like the beginning of this disease. You're going to be achy. You're going to feel lousy. You're not going to be yourself. You're going to get, you know, headaches. You're going to get more fatigue. You're going to feel feverish and nauseated. You will, And again, hard, hard manifestations. I would say tongue claudication, jaw claudication, you know, true signs of cerebral ischemia would be the things I'd worry about. Everything else is steroid withdrawal. So figure out the dose where they start to derail and complain. And in this patient, it's a 10 milligrams. And my regimen is one milligram a month. And you spend the first 10 days of the month going between the prior dose and the new dose. So the 10 milligrams, they spend the first 10 days doing... 10 milligrams on Monday, 9 milligrams on Tuesday, 10 milligrams on Wednesday, 9 milligrams on Thursday. You go up, down, up, down, up, down by 1 milligram for 10 days. And you tell them, if you feel no difference between the 10 and the 9, you're good and safe to stay at 9. And then you got to tell them, your body's got to get used to that. 
You need two to three weeks of that before we can make another change. And you tell them, when you feel like you're doing good at the nine, now that's your invitation to go to the eight. But you've got to tell them. If you don't get off steroids, you're going to get fat, diabetic, cataracts, strange infections, common infections, weird infections, osteoporosis, fractures, bruising, brittle skin, bleeding, muscle weakness, you know, steroid psychosis. Just go on. Give them the plethora of, of what will happen on chronic steroids. Higher risk of cardiovascular events, right? Higher risk of infections. Um, higher risk of, you know, osteoporosis and osteopenia. And then fractures that go with it. And a serious risk of, of cataracts. Do you want to have cataract surgery at your age? Again, the patient has to be motivated. Their only motivation before you coach them up is feeling good. And steroids, boy, they really make me feel good. They're probably quite uncertain about the drugs that you added to get them off steroids, meaning methotrexate, God forbid they looked that up, or uh, the tocilizumab. And again, they're only going to get it when you coach them up onto, uh, as to the hazards of steroids. These cases are the hardest cases we manage, are they not? Come to Room Now Live. We got a whole session on vasculitis. Take care. This is QD Clinic. Hi, I'm Jack Cush with Room Now. QD Clinic is brought to you by Room Now Live 2024, a meeting that's all about what rooms think, say, and do. In making this program, the program is all about the audience. The audience matters most, not what the speakers are saying. They're not the feature. You're the feature. We use, we use the speakers to let you ask them questions, to let you get your point of view and perspective across. That's why Room Now Live is different. I have a really interesting case for you. This is a man with rheumatoid arthritis and a myocardial infarction and an unwillingness to change therapy. Uh, I've been following this gentleman since he was 74. He's now 80. Um, he has seronegative rheumatoid arthritis and is currently taking Tylenol, salicoxib, uh, and sulfasalazine, two grams a day. He has clear-cut rheumatoid arthritis, and he also has Heberin's and Bouchard's nodes in, in his hands as well. He, um, two years ago, had a myocardial infarction. And I must say that for the last, ooh, I want to say, oh, I don't know, <laughs> three or four years, I've been trying to talk him into being on a biologic because he always had active disease with, um, you know, uh, a CDI score that was running somewhere between four and 12, meaning he wasn't in remission. And I thought he could be in remission numbers, which would be three or less. Uh, and he always was unwilling. He, you know, he would read, he's a smart gentleman. He would read about the drugs, you know, he didn't want to be on methotrexate. He didn't want to be on a TNF inhibitor, you know, and he certainly didn't want to be on a jack. And, you know, I think that the question is, how do you convince someone like this? I mean, ultimately, it's shared decision making, is it not? The patient's got to weigh in on your best recommendations. And you and I can't truly tell any patient I promise you, if you change from sulfazalazine to, you know, a JAK inhibitor or a TNF inhibitor, that you'll be so much better. Fact is, it's a flip of the coin. 
You know, we don't, I mean, we've seen so many examples. We want to say they're going to be so much better. But then this patient's also being followed by their primary care and by their cardiologist who's telling them that your rheumatoid arthritis is maybe why you're at a higher risk for an MI. You know, some of those rheumatoid arthritis drugs are a problem, and they, and, but they don't, are kind of vague about that. So anyway, at this visit, when I see the patient, he is on sulfazalazine and, um, you know, four Tylenol a day and celecoxib once a day. And yes, you know, he has very little pain. He does go to the gym three, four days a week. His pain is a one. He says he's doing good or very good. He only has, uh, he has no tender and no swollen joints. So I really can't talk him out of it. But let's flip this. Let's say he's got three tender and three swollen joints, and he's been having that for a while. And he has had that in the past, but I wanted to change him. I think the, the bottom line is he has to make the decision. You have to tell him that um, pound for pound, some of, the new, some of the biologics that have been introduced in the last 20 years, TNF inhibitors, IL-6 inhibitors, even the JAK inhibitors, probably have a better safety profile than does methotrexate. And probably sulfazalazine, especially if you consider sulfazalazine, works best at doses where it's most likely to have toxicity, meaning nausea, vomiting, GI, LFTs, etc. You know, illegal spermia. Even they are less likely at one gram a day, very possible at two grams a day, and guaranteed at three grams a day. Right. So, what can you tell them that the other drugs, pound for pound, are probably safer? They're probably easier to take. And then the last thing I think that you've got to play into this is the hazards of A, chronic inflammation are deadly in someone who has cardiovascular disease. It's almost as bad as telling them, go ahead, smoke two packs a day. Stop exercising and start eating you know, Snickers bars every day. I think it's the same. Having chronic inflammation. And what's equally as bad? Having chronic recurrent flares. Flares of inflammation can be as bad as chronic inflammation when it comes to the downstream effects on A, the joints, and B, the comorbid risks that we see with chronic inflammation. And if you don't convince him of that, then he ain't going to change um, the therapy. Last, quite last issue is what do you do in the throes of a myocardial infarction? Let's say he was on a TNF inhibitor and he got a myocardial infarction. Do you, or, or a JAK inhibitor? I don't change therapy. I would tell them the data coming out of, um, you know, the, the recent studies and the FDA warnings that JAK inhibitors may be associated with more cardiac events in elderly people than TNF inhibitors. But the bottom line is control of inflammation is what you have to do. So you inform them of risks, um, tell them what drugs may lower cardiovascular risks, and there's a number of them, right? TNF inhibitors, JAK inhibitors um, in the right patient, IL-6 inhibitors in the right patient will lower cardiovascular risk by lowering inflammation, um, especially when used in combination with methotrexate. Do I really believe that um, TNF inhibitors, JAK inhibitors, IL-6 inhibitors, abatacept or rituximab causes and significantly contributes to cardiovascular risk? I do not. I think the 800-pound gorilla in the room is RA and RA inflammation and not the therapies. And that's where I'm going when I'm trying to devise a scheme. But you have to inform the patient of what you know and have to, again, involve shared decision-making in what therapies they want to take. These are really hard patients to manage. 
Good news is this patient's doing pretty well. Take care. This is QD Clinic. Hi, I'm Jack Cush with Room Now. QD Clinic is brought to you by Room Now Live 2024. It's happening. It's coming up. What do you want from a great medical meeting? You know what I want? I want to be inspired. I want to hear clarity. Clarity that either confirms what I do or tells me a new, a better way. And I really want to interact. I want to be able to to speak. And I want to hear what others think. And that's kind of what we've put together. It's not too late to attend virtually. Go to roomnow.live and register. So today's case is a um, 43-year-old woman who is put on a, in this case, an IL-17 inhibitor. I don't need to say which, but, you know, it could be any biologic. It could be an IL-6, it could be an IL-1, it could be a TNF. In this case, it was an IL-17 inhibitor. And um, in her very first injection into the thigh, you know, didn't notice anything. Uh, A week went by, she wasn't any better. Um, About 10 days in, she got a rash at the injection site. Right on, the, right on the thigh. It started out about the size of a, oh, I don't know, um, a, a silver dollar. And then it expanded and ultimately got to be about the size of a, a bigger than a, uh, the circumference of a softball, bi- bigger than her hand. Um, not raised, not particularly itchy or... Uh, in the beginning, she has some dysesthesia associated with it. There was the size of the lesion that made her uh, concerned and made her come back to the clinic. And the question is, um, do you get these? Um, and, you know, if you're in this game long enough and use injectables enough, you've seen a lot of injection site reactions. And my answer is, yes, you get them. And, um, and do you get them... Right away, or do you get them delayed? Most of them are right away, if not the same day, within the first three days. Um, most of them are relatively asymptomatic. It's rare that they would be painful, um, and if they are, I would worry about infection and other diagnoses, uh, especially if they were warm or something like that. Can they be remote like this a week or two even after the injection? Yes, they can. Can they expand? Yes, they can. Um, can you get Injection site reactions away from the site of the injection at remote sites. I've heard of those. I've never seen that myself. I've probably seen, um, I've seen these really large ISRs, injection site reactions, with um, two or three of the five TNF inhibitors. Definitely seen it with anakinra. Don't know that I've seen it with the other IL-1 inhibitors. I can't say I've seen it with IL-6. I have seen it with IL-17. Um, and the question is, what do you do about it? Well, usually it's alarming, right? And unless you believe the medicine is life-threatening, I'm sorry, life-saving, you've got enough choices You tell the patient, well, your body just doesn't agree with that. And you basically manage the ISR with topicals, rarely systemic steroids, 
um, hold them over, and when it's resolved, start them on something else. Tell them to inject another spot. And, and, and nine times out of ten, that always uh, seems to work very, very well. I think the real question comes if you're giving the therapy, and it's presumably life-saving. It's COVID, and the patient's getting an IL-6. It's um, someone with macrophage activation syndrome, and you're starting them on an IL-1 inhibitor. You know, and they get these, can you power through them? I'll tell you my experience with ISRs and anakinra when we were doing the anakinra trials for rheumatoid arthritis. There I, I had this one woman who came in uh, at, at her one-month visit. She had some injection site reactions at the two-week visit after she started anakinra. She's doing daily injections of 100 milligrams, sub-Q, given in the morning. When she came back at one month, 28 days, she lifted up her skirt and her thighs looked like she had been shot with buckshot. She had, you know, quarter size, red lesions all over the place at varying stages of being bright red, brand new, or, and then fading and desquamating, meaning that they were two weeks old and about to go away. Uh, and it, you could count these up and then determine how many days she's been on therapy. The interesting thing was she was not yet better from the anakinra for her RA on day 28. On day 35, she said she got dramatically better. When she came back two weeks after that day 28 visit, she her swollen joint count had gone from like 9 to, to 0 or 1. And the point being that when you're getting all these ISRs, you may not be getting better. But they will stop at least with Anakinra, they were going to stop at, at really at the end of a month. I've never seen them go on, seldom seen them go on uh, uh, after one month. So again, ISR management is largely um, talking to the patient with confidence, telling them, don't worry, this is going to go away, and that you have an alternative plan. That's how I manage ISRs. See you at Room Nell